My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. So I'm two glasses in here with Andrew Murray. My name is Brian Rice. I'm the host for Two Glasses In. And so let's talk about your journey and how you got here. I mean, I know pretty intimately about your your family and how you started the vineyard and you planted about the same time Sunstone planted in 1990. One of your first vintages, I believe, was 1992. Same with us. We've kind of paralleled each other in terms of our, our upbringing in, in this region and, and industry. I would say you've done a much better job than I have on the broad market branding yourself and doing such an incredible job branding your wines. But tell me about your journey personally, Andrew, how you got here and why you ended up getting into the wine business. Yeah, it's it's a strange journey for sure. I mean, my it, it really began with the passion from my parents. My so my parents were in the restaurant business and so people immediately assume like fine French dining or white tablecloth dining, but no, my parents had Mexican restaurants. So I always said tequila paid for my- uh, <laughs> Margaritas. <laughs> yeah, margaritas and tequila is like what brought me up. And I'm sure it's true, but dad was a you know self-made guy, both mom and dad, and had a successful restaurant business in, in Southern California where I grew up, grew up in Long Beach. But my dad sold his business in 1988 and I was just uh, a sophomore in high school and dad wanted to, he moved to Paris, like that was his dream. He just wanted to learn how to cook like a, French dude, didn't bother with learning French, just, but he moved to Paris. And so my parents actually sent me to Zermatt, Switzerland for a semester and to Gruyere, Switzerland. And I fell in love with the French language. They made me learn French. And then they did this crazy, you know, almost year long, I was in and out of it for parts, but they did this two and three star Michelin culinary tour of Western Europe. And I pretty much hated it is what I remember. Too much escargot for you? Yeah, it was just, but I, but I, I went from literally eating like, you know, grilled cheeses, eating croque madame, you know, <laughs> like a slippery egg on top. Right. So I went from like, you know, they called me the Coca-Cola kid in the beginning. And then I was translating for my parents. I fell in love with wine. And, and really where it happened was um, in this restaurant called L'Esperance or L'Esperance. Famous chef, Marc Minot, he was just getting his third star. It's in Burgundy. That's where I had my first sip of Condria and this, this very snooty French sommelier, as you can imagine, came up to us and brought us in Burgundy, red Burgundy and white Burgundy. And he would say, oh, can you taste the cote? Can you taste the cranberry? And I'm like, dude, that tastes like red and white wine. <laughs> it was really innocuous. I didn't really care about it. My parents mm -hmm. were unimpressed. I'm sure they were really nice bottles of wine. I wish I could retaste those now, now that I know what I know. He brought us a Philippe Fauré Condria and he said, you know, can you taste the pêche? Can you taste the stone fruit? You know, can you taste the white flower? And I'm like, I can. Huh. And so literally, I got into wine because some pompous French dude poured me a glass of wine that was a throwaway glass of wine and said, can you smell these, you know, tropical notes in the wine? And I could. And so I thought I was onto something, literally. And we all looked at each other like, oh my God, I'm good at this. As only an 18 year old punk ass kid can do. <laughs> you know, it's like, or maybe I was but that, younger. I was that like was 16 like years old. A light bulb moment. That was my for moment. You. And so we and, actually name yeah. our, our red blends called Esperance to mm, this day. That's and homage why. to that. I always when wondered. I, when I fell in love with wine. The name means hope. That, that was my epiphany moment. And we literally left Burgundy, and I'd never been back until last year. I just had, had written it off. Didn't drink Burgundy, didn't care for it, told everyone it wasn't worth anyone's time. You know, now I, I'm a huge Burgundy fan, so I'm, like, I'm catching up for lost time. Was that song there when you went back to the restaurant? No, I haven't been back. You know, he actually, Mark Minow, like went off to Macau and then basically lost his whole, it, it's not in, he's not in business anymore. Oh, okay. So I think we still have a framed menu from that experience because it was this you know, famous three-star long, meal and I'm sure expensive I wasn't paying but <laughs> now it's funny I go to France I love bistro food I can't afford all that heavy three-star right. French I also can't remember to like make a reservation six months in advance so so anyway we, we went and we met Philippe Fauré we're like we want to meet this guy that just put the lights on for me so my family crazily drove down from Burgundy to Condria met this man and his beautiful daughter. And so um, it was like this generational change just about to happen. Turns out his son ended up getting the winery because now it's like named for his son. 
um, still imported by Kermit Lynch, but I met him and it was this neat old man rambling around his hillsides and in Condria and it, it just seemed it just seemed magical. You know, it was like simple, humble, agricultural. And it just, you know, I went from wanting to be like a hotel manager or an attorney to like, that's what I want to do. I want to be this little old man, you know, hobbling around his vineyards, <laughs> um, maybe with his family in tow. You know, you never know. Um, with the cane to poke the kids. Yeah, no, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't that old yet. So yeah, Philippe Fauri was, is, he doesn't know it, but it was like my big inspirational guy. Like mm -hmm. it just, you know, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Like he changed my life. In fact, quick story. My wife, my kids, and myself, the only time we've all been in France together, I go almost every year, but we all were together to go to like an in-laws uh, or her my wife's cousin's wedding. I tell them, we're gonna go meet Philippe Fauri. We've gotta go meet this guy. And so we, we go and I'm gonna go and meet him. And I see him like through his window and he's there like hand applying his little labels. You know, he's much On the older bottles. now. Wow. And you know what? There's sometimes in life you have to leave your memories behind. You know, if you go and say, like, yeah, I'm that American who fell in love with you. And he says, I have no idea who you are. You know, my memory, he knows who I am. He's right. like inspired my whole career. And I didn't want to ruin it. So my wife says, why aren't we going in? I'm like, he's not open. Mm -hmm. And so we just walked away. And so I just have my brief little beautiful moment of him just sitting there hand applying his labels. Like nothing's changed. Right, right. Um, so anyway, I never met him again. So. Still well, drink his Condria. His son is now operating it. Yeah, and still imported by Kermit Lynch. Mm -hmm. You can get his wine. It's Fauri and it's, it's good stuff. But that, I was, love, that was my moment. So I love hearing you know the connection that we have to the old world because they did, of course, inspire us. We have their vines. We have their oak, right? So from that point forward, how did you? I, I know you're, you said your family decided to to grow a vineyard to start a vineyard up here in San Inez. Why did you guys end up in San Inez? Also very much related to my parents, they, my sister has learning disabilities and she was actually attending a school right at the bottom of the 154. My parents, we were living in LA at this time, my parent, I was still in high school, my parents were driving up here to sort of see my sister, see how she's doing. They ended up driving over that beautiful, our 154, you know, still a magical drive. I mean, I remember the first time I drove it, just like, whoa, like this place exists. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's 40 you... minutes of just serene beauty yeah, coming down it's... that bridge. And they showed that on the Sideways movie, yeah. you know, it really is an incredible, it's a jaw dropper, right? Coming from Santa Barbara. It's pretty special. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still, still appreciate it to this day, uh, especially as our, as our aquifers have been refilling with all the rain we had this yeah. year. But, and my parents are like famously always look for real estate. They never buy, but they ended up buying this sort of useless piece of property that didn't have a road in. It was landlocked behind Zaca Mesa. And they bought what they sort of called Back of Beyond Ranch. It didn't have a name, but it became the home of Andrew Murray Vineyards. And I remember when they took my sister and I there for the first time. I mean, this is sort of a, a tragic story of a probably a spoiled 15, 16 year old, 17 year old maybe. I didn't get out of the car. I'm like, this is terrible. Like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to be going off to college. I'll never come. You're here. a city boy. You're not going to get your feet not, dirty. Not, not right away. The place was so remote that I remember my parents looked with a local real estate guy, Joe Ola and some other mm -hmm. folks up here and they went on horseback. I mean, it was like really hard to get to. There was no road, wow. no telephone, no electrical, <laughs> water. So they developed all of that. Wow. Obviously helped build the winery, got the plans approved. Um, it was much easier back then in right. Santa Barbara County to build a winery. Really hard now. How many acres did you plant? We planted just about 13, 14 that first year. And then mm -hmm. we expanded to about 55 acres just before they sold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fast forward a few years struggling. I'm growing a family. My wife is now involved. And Christy oversees the marketing or you guys kind of collaborate on all levels other than maybe winemaking? She sort of runs the show. She does a lot of HR, runs the wine club, you know, mm -hmm. basically a lot of the stuff that I just can't be. Sure. I'm a creative like you. It's like it's fun, so many of us in this in the wine business because it's a very big, passionate thing. You know, it occupies all of our energy. Right. But just like you being involved in this podcast, you know, and you've done productions mm -hmm. and movies and photography, you know, it's, I wanted to be a photographer, you know, so it's like mm -hmm. I had this whole creative side. So I did the UC Davis and have my token double BS in viticulture and enology, but I always like lead with you know, I'm an artist. <laughs> That's really <laughs> even interesting. If, you know, even if I'm more proud of that I can, you know, yeah. develop photos in a dark room than I can explain the conversion of sugar to ethanol. Who cares about that? Right. So you can right. taste it, but I don't want to talk about it. So. Well, your, your medium is grapes and, and wine now, right? So yeah, and I love farming. My feet, are all, my feet are always dirty. My hands are always dirty. You know, I changed a lot from that punk kid who basically wouldn't get out of the car. 
you know, when I was mistakenly thinking, you know, here I was this kid, you know, that I really did have my own winery, you know, and I realized I really didn't have my own winery until after 2005 when they sold. And that's when like everything changed for us. You know, we had the ability to shrink, to grow, to change. We didn't even know where we were going to make wine. The Firestone family stepped up and gave us this building. Uh, you mentioned Kathy Joseph on the show. She actually made some wine there. Fess Parker mm. made wine there. But it was built by Dean Brown, the, the folks, our immediate neighbors of our old winery. And as a crow flies, it was only a couple of miles away. It was a lifetime away as far as having to move all the barrels and all the winemaking toys, but it was literally just right next door. And it was that must have been a really scary time for you. I mean, to all of a sudden be responsible for the financial aspects of the business, but also all the operations and the vineyards and growing. You being an artist, you know, now you've got multiple hats and multiple levels of operational uh, management. So, so, you know, obviously Christy stepping in and kind of helping bridge that gap with you probably felt liberating or, or probably encouraging our kids were forward. like i've got photos of the kids that you know we put on the slideshow and they're just tiny and they're in this new unfinished space and they're just they're all excited you know and i'm like you guys have no idea i was terrified yeah terrified for all those reasons you know getting financing for the first time on your own just basically living and dying by you know there, there was no sort of plan b at that moment we went from a really beautiful space that was never open you know our tasting room is it was his, we've been in downtown los olivos since 1998 i think we were the third tasting room wow. in los olivos now there's over 20 30 i think 46 yeah. or something is really here wow feels mm -hmm. like it it's mm -hmm. like a pub crawl down there but we were like the third and you couldn't you know you used to be able to shoot a cannonball down <laughs> grand avenue and you know it was like no one was showing up just to crickets. taste wine yeah it was just <laughs> You know, we only open a few days a week. Yeah, the business obviously changed a lot. But um, so 05 made that dramatic shift. We got our last vintage in 05 from that old estate. It was the last year we made Roasted Slope until I believe 2012 or 2013 when we started it up again. It was sort of felt like I, you know, enough wounds had healed, enough time had passed, enough water had gone under the bridge, every other cliche. And decided to start it up again. Um, and we're glad we did because it's, you know, it, in 96, when we first made our Roasted Slope, we got, you know, not the scores matter, but it did when I was just a kid and didn't know how to make wine. It mattered because it sort of showed that we had arrived in Santa Barbara County. You know, we got scores that match, you know, Bob Lindquist and Clendenin, you know, some of the other greats of the day that, you know, like I still own. Right, and, you know? and Robert Parker really put Santa Barbara County on the map with his high, yeah, he, highly accoladed wines he, from, from you and Jim Clendenin and all of oh, yeah, these the other cast of characters. Sure, yeah. but, let me ask you a question, a personal question about scores. Okay, so we need scores to sell wine, obviously. It's a, it's a big factor, especially in the broad market. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've done very well with scores. I mean, it's, it's certainly allowed you to go into every market in the country and now internationally. But from a personal winemaker to winemaker perspective, how important is the scores for you to know if the wine is good or bad? Oh, irrelevant. <laughs> Scores are, you know, again, is, is, I don't want to overstate this, but as, as artists, you know, I think maybe, you know, I don't write books. I don't know how to paint. I did take some photos and put them out there to be judged. But there's nothing worse than sort of asking, begging someone to, like, judge you, you know? I mean, it's terrifying. There's no fun in that. You know, when they give you a great score, you always say, oh, yeah, they're the smartest people on the planet. And when they're not very nice to you, they're like, oh, they just didn't get it. You know, so, I mean, it's, it's prevalent in any world that where, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a bit of connoisseurship or consumership, you know. I think it helps in some ways. You know, I, I'll buy some wines that are completely unknown to me if, if a person I trust, whether it's a store owner, a critic, a friend says, hey, this wine's really good. You know, if you get to know someone's palate and do what I think you're really supposed to do. I think scores can be relevant, but I think if you just go off the number, I think they're completely irrelevant. So in a more direct-to-consumer model, I mean, whether you publish scores or not, whether you seek them out, at our tasting room, we put numbers on some of our wines, and I totally feel like a moron for doing it because some people come in and, you know, what's a 96? And I'm like, it's really rare, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is it's, really rare. You know, it's like... And they're like, well, who gave it to you? And you'll yeah. say Jeb Dunnick or right. you know, Tony Bologna. Like, who's that? <laughs> and it's just like, you know, so it's, sometimes it's a, it's a bigger conversation than you really want to have because mm -hmm. it's not about the wine. It's not about the place. It's not about my heart. You know, it's just about what someone said about the wine. Right. And that, you know, further removes you one step from the, the real meat of the story, if you, if you will. 
No, I'm really uh, eager yeah. to taste your, your stuff. Uh, what cool. did you bring? I brought uh, two bottles today. I brought our 2017 Syrah Tour and then really almost the opposite of that. I brought our 2017 Roasted Slope. Nice. Let's get started. All right. Should we open this one? Sure. Screw cap, huh? Screw cap. Oh, yeah. We started with screw caps. We were early adopters. I think it was back in 03 or something like that. It all started because of a wine dinner in Germany. There were many of us. I was probably the most junior winemaker there, but we had about 30% of the wines that night at Tantris, this famous restaurant in Munich that were all corked. Mm. And it just destroyed me. Here I was, went all the way to Europe to sell our wine and wow. most of them were corked. So we literally came home and started exploring screw tops right after that. So. I don't blame you. This smells amazing. Tell me about the site. So this is a multi-site wine. So when I started the winery back in 1990, we, all of our wines were, you know, I think really affordable, but back then they were like 25 to 40 bucks. And I was just coming out of high school. None of my friends could afford our wines and they would just cry to me, you know, you need to make wine that's more affordable or, you know, we're going to keep drinking beer and <laughs> spirits and, you know, anything else for loco. Um, right. So a good buddy of mine said, you know, why don't you make something affordable? And so Tout Le Jour was born out of that. Tout Le Jour means every day. So, you know, this wine is varied from all over the valley. So back in the day, it started our, it was actually an estate wine, very small production. It's grown to about 13,000 cases a year. Wow. Sold in many countries, you know, a bunch of places all over the U.S., Canada, Sweden, Denmark. So you, you travel a lot, huh? I do, I do less, but okay. I do do some. This was a big travel year. Mm -hmm. So Toulajure is now about 25% estate grown and the balance, we have like a rule for Toulajure, it all has to come from five miles of the winery's front door. Mm. So it's labeled as San Inez Valley. Mm -hmm. So it's 100% San Inez Valley. We farm or direct the farming for 100% of the sites for this wine. So, sense. you know, a big source is right next door to Zaka Mesa and our old ranch where Demetria is now. It's Tom Dittmer's ranch, the uh, Oak Savannah Vineyard. Mm -hmm. Another one is in downtown, basically downtown Los Olivos. The Great Oaks Vineyard is a, another big source of this wine. And then our estate. Can you describe it for us in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, so when, when we, Tule Jour is more of an idea. Um, so we want it to taste like Syrah, but, you know, nationally it's about a $19 bottle of wine. You can find it on sale at sometimes for like 14, 15 bucks. Oh, wow. That's so a huge it's super, value. Yeah, super available, super accessible. And I find that a lot of the wines in this price point are over oaked with like, wood mm -hmm. chips or you know whatever or they're sweet mm -hmm. um, right they're that named seems like, to be a trend they're named well. like boom boom and you know mm -hmm. they're named funny names and so we wanted this wine to be more of an aspirational Syrah a really legitimate you know authentic Syrah so it has the herbal spice notes that Syrah is famous for those gamey notes but it's unmistakably Californian it's fruity it's bright, it's got natural acidity from our cool climate. And 17 is probably one of my favorite vintages yet of this wine. So it's quite young. And do you also sell it in your tasting room? It's the one wine we don't sell in our tasting mm -hmm. room. So you have to go and buy this somewhere else. Okay, so. all right. No, it's beautiful. <clears throat> Very expressive of, as you said, the terroir of the central San Inez Valley. Terroir seems to be a, a, a wine that hasn't really taken off <laughs> in our industry, but I know the you've been child. dedicated to yeah. it since the beginning in, in the early 90s. How has Syrah morphed into something successful for you versus yeah. a lot of other wineries? The, you know, that terrible joke is, is what's the difference between Syrah and pneumonia? You, you can get rid of pneumonia. <laughs> um, it's not been true for us. You know, we, we had this moment back in 2005 when my parents sold their property and I sort of had to move on. And at that moment, you know, we weren't married to Syrah anymore, you know, because the state vineyard was, this, you know, immediately gone from the opportunity. And so we looked at ourselves and said, you know, what do we know? What do, what do we like? Where should we go? And we found this opportunity to stay right near where we were on the, on the Curtis property. And so we doubled down with Syrah. And that's when we started making more Syrah to Le Jour. And it's basically, you know, not last year, but the years before that, it was almost doubling every year in production. So it's 13,000 cases now, but it was only got a couple thousand cases a few years ago. Wow, what a success story. Um, we had it backed up in a warehouse and you know, we got a great score and changed distributors and mm -hmm. it was off to the races. So I think what happened with Syrah's a little bit of what happened to Merlot, you know, minus the sideways effect was that mm -hmm. it became sort of red wine for a lot of people mm -hmm. and it lacked distinctiveness of regionality. You know, like Australia was making its version, France had its really austere version 
And in the U.S. it had, we had every version. Right. And so I think it was lacking in identity. People, you know, wondered, was it Shiraz-like? Was it French-like? You know, and there was no California identity. And so people oaked it. People ripe, made it overly ripe. And so it struggled for a little bit. And then people, you know, used it as an opportunity. Like, you know, Napa went big after it because they're like, oh my God, we make Syrah, but this would be a wine that people can drink more quickly before they drink our Cabernets. And so they introduced them at obscene prices too for, you know, first year, second year, young vineyard wines. And I think it just had this identity crisis where it was just people were asking too much of consumers. And so this wine is sort of the opposite of that. You know, this wine is an accessible, available, affordable wine. So this is like number one wine that I travel around the country and sell. You know, it's our most affordable. It's like, you know, the one I spend the most of my time actually proselytizing about. But I tell people, it's like, you say you can't sell Syrah, buy this one, I promise you, you'll sell it. And almost every time it sells. So... I think making it available, affordable, authentic helps a lot. So we sort of did it the easy way and just made it affordable. Well, you've done a great job and thank you. You know, you're really a pioneer for this variety in Santa Barbara County and you stuck with it. That took a lot of courage, right? You know, a lot of wineries get nervous and they switch their programs and then they lose track of who they are. Uh, You've been committed to Syrah and you've helped develop Santa Barbara County as a Syrah producer and a Syrah region. I hope to live up to that, so thank you. Yeah, well, keep it up. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. And this wine is astounding. I mean, for the price, I can't believe you're providing such a beautiful value proposition for consumers. Let's dive into this roasted slope. And I'd love to explain to people, if you don't mind, you know, what roasted slope means. I I don't think people realize that there's this old world heritage around that phrase. Yeah, so I was really young. I mentioned that already when I started the winery, but I was, truth be told, when we started the winery, um, we only wanted to grow Viognier. And so it was actually a nursery mistake that brought us to Syrah in the first place. So there's a whole nother story there. But that vineyard was, uh, that was supposed to be Viognier, we kept replanting it with Viognier through the years as the vines died. And so it ended up being Syrah three years later at first for Asian. Mm. So we planted 1990, 93, we're getting ready to make our first Viognier and it all turns red. That is crazy. I so never knew that story. It's all Syrah. So you, this was a complete accident. Oh yeah, we make 95% strong. Syrah today and it all started with Viognier. So that's the antithesis to the situation we had. We were planting Merlot and Syrah, and we ended up with an accidental nursery mistake of Viognier. Is that right? Yeah, only one acre scattered throughout the entire vineyard. Okay. And so now we make Linda's Viognier, a dedication to my mother who passed in 10. And it's just uh, such a wonderful mistake. I mean, we, it is. it's one of our favorite wines. And for you, it's became your, your you know, flagship. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. I didn't know that. I know about your wine, but I didn't know that story behind it. Do you remember where you got those cuttings from? We cooperatively purchased with Fess Parker Winery. Okay. And so it was actually Marcy Parker's favorite variety, and they were planting Viognier over by where you oh, were. got it. And we offloaded all the vines, not knowing, of course, and putting them into the ground. And then two years later, with our first yield, we saw these beautiful golden, you know, sweet grapes right around August 15th. And we realized what it must have been muscat. We didn't know what it was. Got it. And next thing you know, DNA comes back as Viognier. And we were in the Viognier business. Well, I mean, this story can get really long, but we actually got our cuttings from Klein Cellars up in... Sonoma, which was like a famous early adopter and promoter of Rhone varieties. And, you know, I was a founding member of this group called the Viognier Guild. You know, so for the three years, it became the Hospice du Rhone, you know, with John Alvin, John Matt Alvin, Garrison, right. and, you yeah. know, and everyone up in Paso. But I would sit there and, you know, we'd stand up and, you know, whine about how poorly Viognier is growing in California. And I'm like, mine grows like a weed, guys. You should come look. And a couple of them finally did come look and they're like, you don't have any Syrah in your vineyard. And I'm like, nope, I, we, I've got the bill of sale. I know it's it's Viognier. And then literally three years later, I'm still at UC Davis at the time, my professor, Dr. Cleaver, comes down, viticulturalist, and does ampelography studies, you know, checks the leaves, checks the phenology of the vines, and says, you've got Syrah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so anyway, Roasted Slope was born two years after that. So 1996 was our first vintage. We were keeping all the Viognier separate from the Syrah. And then in 96, it was sort of modest yields. It looked like a really good vintage. It was only my second year of really making wine under my own label. I'm like 22, 23 years old. Barely Um, old enough to even drink wine. And so I remembered how much I loved Cote Roti in the Northern Rhone. I know that's why you asked this question. I'm finally getting there. (laughs) I fell in love with the wines of Cote Roti. Luckily, 
because it had a bunch of Viognier in it. So, you know, some people did. So I loved Viognier. So loved Condria right next door is Cote Roti. Mm -hmm. We visited there, fell in love with Cote Roti. So I realized I had this opportunity. We had this mishmash of a vineyard. So we created Roasted Slope and Cote Roti, which I think is the most astounding Syrah vineyard on the planet, not just visually, but just qualitatively, historically. I mean, there's Roman terraces, it's amazing. So we created the direct translation of Cote Roti, means Roasted Slope. And I was, I don't know, I was in my early 20s and I actually bought that trademark. So just because I'm like, I don't want anyone else to do it. It's a great name. And you know, people have done it since and we've had to, you know, argue with people. But, sure. you know, Foxen makes a great sort of homage to that from our old vineyard and it's called Toasted Rope and they love it when I tell the story, but they, I told them they should call it Two Toasted Dopes. <laughs> They're very good friends of mine. They helped us plant our vineyard back in the day, so I think I kept the license Sounds like to say that. we need to get them on the show you for sure. <laughs> you definitely do. Good people. You need to get them both at the same time. It would be like comedy hour I'm and sure. like history hour. Great, great man. For sure. So, so Roasted Slope is, is, let me get there, is a 8% Viognier Syrah blend. So it's 92% Syrah, 8% Viognier by, and whole, by whole cluster weight. Co-fermented so or yeah, are you blending? It is co-fermented. Yeah. So it's just like in Cote Roti, the same, same methodology. They throw all the white clusters in with the red clusters in the, in the picking baskets and yep. ends up in the vat fermenting together. What do you think the advantages are? I've heard Jim Clendenin speak to this a few times about the enzymes in the Viognier having some type of improvement in the Syrah fermentation. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, not. I mean, I don't know much about the enzymatic action of it. Sort of nerdy. They call it co-pigmentation. One of my professors at UC Davis is a guy that's like, you know, written the paper on co-pigmentation. It's a guy named Dr. Bolton, Roger Bolton. He's super technical, nerdy. He's, he's the Australian guy that got me my first internship in Australia when I was 19. So I, I love this man. He was promoting this concept of co-pigmentation. I mean, it's sort of widely studied. It's also widely debated. But basically, the, the phenolics of the white grapes, especially Viognier, is, uh, is extremely intense. It's very phenolic. Most of us press our Viognier off the skins quite quickly, so we're, you know, the wines are absence of those, you know, those drying, bitter phenolics. Mm -hmm. But in the presence of that, just small 8%, um, with the Syrah, actually, it's, it's purported to make it darker. And there's some right. studies that show it does make it darker. There's some studies that show it doesn't matter that much, but you definitely can't just add white wine, you know, liquid to red wine and make it darker. That's counterintuitive. Right. It's always going to dilute it. But the white grapes with the presence of the red fermenting skins definitely helps. And they do it with Roussan, but Viognier also adds what I think is the most important. You can get it in this wine, I think, especially when it's first open, you get those aromatics. So it's undeniably Syrah, you know, it's got pepper and tar and mm -hmm. some of the charry oak, the breakfast meat as we call it, but then there's this like white flower, candied violet that just sort of floats up out of the glass. And did that's you say breakfast meat? Breakfast meat, You yeah. did. I yeah. just that's a nicer sure way of saying like, straight. you know, charred bacon fat. Yeah, you know? which so I love. I always, call, I always call it breakfast meat. Yeah, I like that. But I eat it like three meals a day, so mm -hmm. it could be you know, just... <laughs> You eat Syrah for breakfast? Well, no, I drink, eat like bacon three meals a day. I don't recommend Syrah for breakfast. It's a big wine. No, it's absolutely stunning. It's super powerful, but elegant. So how much oak, what's your whole regime with the oak program? And are you a proponent of more power from the oak side or do you, you really want the fruit to show through? It's a good question. You know, the world, wines got oakier and oakier and oakier through the years, you know, sort of following Bordeaux, following the success of Napa, I think. And there's been a big pushback in the last three or four or five years where people are going more natural, you know, more unadorned. I call it less makeup, if you will. Just let the natural beauty shine through. For example, with the Tous Les Jours, it's 100% neutral. It's all Asian French oak, but it's 100% neutral. Roasted Slope never gets more than about 25% new French oak. I feel like Syrah has a really beautiful affinity for a modicum of French oak. It sort of helps promote that, that what I call that breakfast meat quality, that sort of toasty, fleshy, iodine-y. Mm -hmm. It sort of helps tame some of those some of those sort of less desirable characters of Syrah, some of the green notes. And I love, I love oak, so I'm a total oak slut, but I don't use a lot of it. Mm-hmm. It's also gotten really expensive, you know. Right, so, which which is my next yeah. question because oak is so expensive, especially French versus American. And I know a lot of Santa Barbara winemakers love using American oak on their Syrah specifically, that there's something that enhances Syrah by using American oak as opposed to French. What's your theory on that? Well, I like bourbon a lot. I mean, we sell wine in Kentucky just so I can visit at least every other year. So 
bourbon, the, the, there's like actually Appalachian law around bourbon, which is sort of nerdy, but it's cool. They actually have to use 100% new American oak. So I'm a believer that we should all save all the American oak for bourbon <laughs> because I worry that they might run out one day and I won't get my precious bourbon. So, so no, I don't use any American oak. I'm not a snob about anything. You know, I'll drink wine out of my hands, paper cups. <laughs> You know, I don't care how you get the cork out of the bottle. You know, hell, I don't even use corks all the time. You know, I'm not very snobby, but I, I'm just not a big fan of American oak, personally. Not just, I've tried it. We've, we've messed around with Russian, Hungarian, Eastern European. It's just, for me, it's just simple. There's so many variables with winemaking. I just have centered around two or three Coopers that we really love. And, and in fact, I mean, I'm, you might make similar decisions, but we, we love to talk about we don't like to buy our barrels for the Coopers ego. For the barrel maker's ego, we want them to. I want my ego to shine through, if you will. In fact, I don't even want my ego. I want the varietal and the places mm -hmm. ego to shine through. So we tend to choose barrels that really promote the fruit forwardness, lower toast, not toasted heads. And so it's weird. Sometimes you think, God, oh, why are you spending, you know, thirteen hundred bucks for a barrel that you can barely taste? Thirteen hundred dollars for a it's barrel. About what they're going for? Yeah, it, people mean, don't even know the cost of of these this equipment and barrels and the labor and all the love that goes into creating these wines. But I've asked a few people about barrels and why we go through the hassle of using oak barrels. I mean, if you think about it, you could essentially take a two by four of French oak and throw it in a tank or some sawdust chips or whatever and essentially get the flavor that you're looking for, but there's something different yeah. about barrels. What, what is the difference about barrels versus just oaking a wine in a tank? Well, for me, I mean, the interesting thing about barrel is like there's the useful flavor of a barrel, that sort of toastiness, if you will, is only lasts about three to four years. I mean, there's actually like a, you know, like an, what do you call it? A, a, a table of, you know, sort of diminishing value and you lose like, you know, 60% in year one and then like 20% in year two and then it goes to basically almost zero in three and four. Similarly, there's a lot of trapped molecular oxygen in a young barrel, you know, it's just naturally in the wood, of a, not a young barrel, but a new barrel. And so that oxygen is almost gone after year three or year four. So you get zero molecular oxygen from the, some, from the, from the inside of the barrel but you are getting sort of a little bit, still a version of micro-oxygenation just from the actual bung itself. So the barrel still breathes after three or four years, but it's certainly it's starting to clog and the internal molecular mm. oxygen is all gone. You can never get that back. It's all been consumed. And so really what you're getting is just this perfect aging vessel, I think, you know, that allows the lees to settle. So it allows your wines to clarify naturally over time. They're super convenient for filling. I think the biggest pain might be topping, just the, the act of having to refill them. It's really difficult weeks. and so frustrating to have to top. And some people only top three times a year, others top sure. monthly or every two weeks. But it is such a hassle and so much work goes into keeping your wines topped off. I think we lose five barrels a month. In, to wine angels. Three to five barrels a month, depending upon the season, yeah. yeah. We don't have an underground cellar. It's not humidified. It's refrigerated. But it's also sort of drying refrigeration, so it's... Mm -hmm. It's a lot of loss. But that's even with that, 100 cases a month. That's a lot of <laughs> it's profit. 1,200 cases a year. In some cases, that could that's, be your profit. That's, people make up 1,200 cases a year. Right. So it's crazy. We're going to need how to solve, need to figure out how to solve yeah. that problem. Tell me a little bit more about the roasted slope wine. What, like, what would you take it out? What would you pair it with? What, what's kind of your favorite pairing with this wine? I don't know any day that ends in why. <laughs> it's uh, I, I like this one with with like heavier fare. So like I love Saran games. So like lamb, duck. We've got a great local restaurant like Sy Kitchen. They mm -hmm. do this polenta and like osobuco thing, and it's like it would be. They serve it there, so it'd be like really good with that. Is what I always think of. So like man, we have to meat. go. Yeah, we should do that. We have to go do that. That sounds really <laughs> do that good. stat. And then this wine, the roasted slope, 2017 vintage, right? Yeah, it's young. I, I contemplated bringing an older one, but it's one of our best sellers, and I just didn't have it. I mean, yeah. I have a library tucked away, but. Well, that'll be the next show. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's young, but it's approachable, you know. So tell me, how can people find this wine? Unfortunately, they have to know you. No, no, it's not that. It's uh, but they do basically have to get it from the winery or the winery's website. It's. I mean, I think maybe we sell ten cases a year outside of the winery. So they have to come to your tasting room yes. to get it. And tell me about your tasting room. Where is it located? Yeah, we're, How do they find it? We're on you know Fox and Canyon Road on the Fox and Canyon Wine Trail, the heart of Los Olivos. Not hard to find. We're andrewmurrayvineyards.com. But the winery itself is a beautiful building. We only moved there or moved into that space. It's our third move, hopefully our last. We moved in there just three, now four years ago. And it's, a, it's the old Curtis Winery. It's a beautiful dairy. Yeah, it's a beautiful it's got space. A lot of history. Yeah, it was a Rhone varietal winery for the Firestone family. So mm -hmm. it's like, feels so cool to like to sort of continue yeah, that tradition. Absolutely. It's really an honor. 
But the, the space itself is like, it's, it was a guy's private art collection or art gallery. And so it was never designed to be a winery. So when you flow through the space, it doesn't feel like it was ever going to be a winery. You know, we've got places where it feels like you're in there, you know, in a, in a living room, barrel room, and a tasting room. You know, there's always little private spaces. And I love it. Yeah, so it's do a beautiful I. space. Yeah, you have a beautiful space as well. So it, uh, oh, thank you. I come and steal ideas from you, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the beauty of Santa Barbara County is we all share information and equipment and knowledge and in some cases, marketing. We, we co-market together yep. and we help each other out where we can. And We've made wines together for that's charity. Right. You know? We've, we've, so we've helped been, local schools yeah. together and I'm excited to see where we go from here. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara brilliant. Visit SantaBarbaraCA.com to plan your stay. It, it's just, the world is changing a lot right now. I mean, it's really, I think it's as exciting as it's ever been to be in the wine business. I agree. Uh, and consumers are, are far more sophisticated more than they used to be back in the 90s when they didn't even know how to say Cabernet no. Sauvignon. Now, now they know how to say Viognier and Syrah. Some and, do. Yeah. <laughs> Some still call <laughs> it the Wagner. <laughs> yeah. But we're so lucky to be at this stage in, in this industry where the consumers are, are educated and they want more and they want new and they want different. Yeah. No, I mean, especially the, the consumers that are coming up. I mean, they sort of value authenticity and story over almost everything else. So there's a whole other challenge that's going on right now. We seek out scores still. You know, we, we do have wines that we wholesale across the U.S. Every wholesaler says, oh, it doesn't matter. But when you get a good score, you notice they buy more of that wine. You know, so it... You know, people, I go into accounts and the, the, the sales rep that I'm with is like, don't mention scores. And the first thing the buyer will ask me, did this wine get a score? Yeah. And I was like, well, why are you guys so Jekyll and Hyde about this? Let's right. just be honest. You know, do you want a score or do you not want a score? We have right. some. If you don't want to hear about it, let's not talk about it. Right. I mean, to be honest, one of the only ones that we talk about is our, the Toulé Jour. It's 10 years in a row from like legit critics, you know, the spectator, the, the enthusiast, Robert Parker, that we've gotten 90 or above, including the current vintage. And we're super proud of that. That sells a lot of wine. When the roasted slope gets 94 to 96, it, I don't know if it sells a bottle. It, do you um, think that has to do with the price point? Um, yeah, I mean, our wines are actually all, we're always known as like a relative value. So, I mean, even the roasted slope, Actually, I couldn't tell you what it costs right now. Maybe forty-five, fifty. Mm -hmm. Well, it's in the um, it's in the above forty category, yeah. which you know anything over forty is is not everyday drinking wine no. for most people. However, there are those one percenters that you know, forty is just chump change to them, and they're used to buying hundred fifty dollar bottles of of Napa wine, right? I think. Would you argue, or would you also agree with me that Santa Barbara County is a, a value proposition for consumers? Huge value proposition. I mean, we have you can always taste the ocean in our wines. What I mean by the ocean, you can taste that freshness you know we've got beautiful natural acidity long growing season I mean we're like I don't know I mean I think we're one of the most amazing places on the planet to grow grapes I mean there's just something really special about this area you know varietally across the board geographically from Appalachian to Appalachian there's a ton of diversity in the Santa Barbara County I think that's amazing you know people make wines from when individual counties or Appalachians and they do really well at it demand a high price but they're not making the best versions of those wines here in our county, you know, our ocean plays dramatically into our wines. You know, the closer we are to it, the cooler it is, the, you know, unfortunately, maybe the warmer the nights as well. But as you get further and further away, you have warmer days, colder nights, and you get a whole different proposition for what you can do with winemaking. And it's, it's absolutely astonishing. It's special to be here. I mean, I, I got here by accident, but, you know, if I'd like to do it all over again, I'd like to think that I would come to this place to make wine, so... On that note, let's pour some more of this roasted slope. Okay. This is absolutely amazing. <clears throat> Go for it. One of my favorite parts about Santa Barbara County and this wine country that we've been somewhat raised in is the characters, you know, the cast of characters, all the players, you know, from the pioneers like Kathy Joseph yeah. and Jim Clendenin to the rising stars, Kat Gaffney and Jill Russell would be good examples. They all have this sense of pride and, and uh, respect for our region. I think everyone feels enlisted in the Santa Barbara wine country story that it's, it is a special place. 
and it's and it's got a camaraderie and a sense of uh, respect for each other as winemakers. How would you kind of describe the differences between our region, culturally speaking, and other wine countries? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a it can be a slippery slope to get too much into that. I haven't really made wine anywhere else. I know I hired my assistant from a, a famous appellation just north of us, and you know she was all too excited to come down here. So I basically, you know, you're talking about young rising stars, McKenna Jardine. You know, she's going to, I've hired my replacement, you know, I'm, you know, she's, she's on her way. She's already making our sister label, the 11 wines, but she came from a place where when job opportunities came up, they would literally like eat your own young to like get that job, you know, either not tell your friend about it or like slash their tires on the way to the interview. (laughs) I'm being dramatic, but that may exist here, but here McKenna actually hosts Every year, you know, this women in wine thing that she's super proud of and she's grown this network, all these young people. I mean, I feel like our industry is getting younger and younger mm-hmm. and more more forward searching than ever. It feels know? like open source, right? Like we're, it, it, we're I feel like we're incubating mm-hmm. something now. You know, I mean, I remember when the, the old guard was here and we when, I fir- when we first moved in, there was a lot of welcoming, but there was a little bit of guardedness. You know, it's like, well, who are you? You know, we got a good thing going on here. And then within a few short years, you know, all of us found each other, helped each other, you know, whether if your equipment broke. I mean, my favorite story is Fess Parker did more than a few favors for me, but I remember like, I'm never going to be able to help them. You know, they're like Big Brother Winery down the street, but they're like press broke one day and, you know, three tons of grapes showed up and we were able to put it through my ghetto press that we had at the time. <laughs> and I remember like, oh man, I was finally able to pay it forward. You know, and I've been able to do it in spades since then, but this was like a lifetime ago. And so I feel like our industry in general you know, I don't want to say we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder anyway, because, you know, we're, we're, we're newer, we're still proving ourselves, mm-hmm. but we all sort of want each other to do really, really well, I think, because we want to sort of work with, I don't want to say coattail, but, you know, we're all coattailing on the Jim Clendenins and the, you know, the Sanfords and, you know, and mm-hmm. Foxen and, you know, we're all coattailing in some way, but, you know, now we're able to provide a bit of coattail and then some of these young rising stars are adding, you know, value and interest to our county. So our, our book, I thought was, was going to be like a small book, but we're just adding chapters, right? So I think we're getting more people interested in reading this book and learning about our area. It's going to take time. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most comfortable things about where we are in our place is, you know, I've traveled around. When I was at UC Davis, there was a guy named Jean-Louis Schaub there. He was 14th generation wine grower. Wow. He has like written an oral history. He has, <laughs> he has bottles to prove it. 14th generation. I, I did the math on this. I think it made that they, meant that they were making wine back in like the 500s or wow. 600s or something. It's crazy. We're 47 years here in, in Santa Barbara County. Right. We're, we're laying a foundation that I hope will be like, you know, the Roman Empire of, of, of the future. You know, we're laying a foundation. People are going to be building on top of what we, we've done. And hopefully we'll all figure out a way to, you know, stay relevant and important and useful. But if nothing else, hopefully we've helped lay a cornerstone you know, that allowed Mm-hmm. what's coming next to, to be important. And that's been going on for a long time. If you think about the winemakers, for instance, that, that they got their stepping stone at Zaca Mesa. Exactly. You know, there's probably a dozen winemakers that we know today are really the, the godfathers, if you will, of the region. And I see that out of my own winery. There's been three or four celebrity winemakers yeah. that have come You've out of Sunstone. You've incubated people right out. Yeah. Right. And, and it's tough to do that sometimes. You know, it's like, hey, stay a little longer. But right. you, know, you realize their potential and growth. And Absolutely. You, you want them to, to fly free, you know. It's, yeah. That's a blessing. It's, it's, um, it's neat. I mean, and that, that happens all over for sure. But I just feel here, from what I know, I feel like it happens more frequently, more mm-hmm. often. Uh, more consistently. Well, so we've talked about the past and where we are today. What's the future look like for Andrew Murray Winery? Anything uh, exciting that you're experimenting with or uh, a vision for growth or is one of your... You know, it's interesting. I always tell people we're so boring. You know, people always say, oh, you changed your label. I'm like, nope. You know, we haven't changed our label since our first minute in 1993. We've rearranged it a little bit. We fine-tuned the paper choice. uh, There's a little bit of a glossy detail now. Yeah, it's nice. Well, you know, it's funny. It was always there. It just wasn't as pronounced because the printing quality back in the day wasn't that good. It's really not changed. But to think of a winery who's been very boringly consistent, uh, our scores, our reviews, our notoriety has been slowly gradualing. But just last year, we did release three absolutely new wines. We made our first estate wine our first estate Syrah since 2005. 
we made a new blend that's more Vedra dominant called Etranger, that's sort of the, the brother sister wine of our Esperance. Mm -hmm. We've got this keg program that's really fun. Talk about incubating, you know, we we're able to like get wine to market really quickly and see people's taste preference for it. Mm -hmm. And we have this growler program where you can come and refill your growler. Very European. At the tasting room, right? people well, bring their growler at, back? At the winery, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we sell refillable glass and stainless steel growlers, and that's really fun. And, and that's ecologically responsible too, right? Oh yeah, there's all those benefits, but I mean, it's like the marketing and instantaneous feedback. You, mm. know, you know if it's a success because people will come back and refill it. If it's not, you know, people oh, are like, wow. what do you got next? You know? So yeah. it's been fun for us. We've been experimenting. You know, the world's getting even more natural. I mean, you're organic. Are you biodynamic as well? No, we're okay. just we're we're not using any pesticides yeah, okay. or herbicides yeah. and all the sides. So, you know, we're, we've made wines that are completely zero, additive free. Uh, I mean, most of our wines have almost nothing anyway, but we've made them with no sulfur, with a lot more skin contact. So we've been very mm -hmm. experimental, and some of that's driven by McKenna, um, mm -hmm. you know, having a younger person around the winery. Mm -hmm. um, Any so, native yeast fermentations? Oh, yeah, we do a lot of that, mm -hmm. yeah. And we do some very pointed yeast selection. And, and you know, where we have the most fun, I guess, is maybe with our 11 label. You know, it's like we, we make Cabernet Franc, we make Pinot Noir Rosé. Like we make things that don't fit into the Andrew Murray Rhone world. Mm -hmm. This has always been all Rhone. I'll never bastardize this. Mm -hmm. But we've, we have this outlet, this creative outlet that with our 11 label. And, and now I grow 150 acres of grapes, which is crazy. You know, wow. from my 55 acres of beginnings. We grow Sauvignon Blanc. We have 47-year-old Chenin Blanc. And so we're experimenting with all of, we have old vine Riesling on the estate, Curtis estate that we've leased and taken over. But we have all these you know, other things that we've just traditionally sold. And now we've kept a ton here and a ton there. And we've made these keg wines. And they'll never be under our, the Andrew Murray label. But you know, I feel like we are innovating. We've actually started blending Syrah and Petite Syrah into our most aspirational wine. And it's got a terrible name. It's called Brazen. Um, something I'm not at all, but I love that name because the the bottle is this tall, imposing, you know, waxed, heavy bottle, and it's the whole concept is brazen. It's our, <laughs> it's a beautiful wine, but it, the idea is make the best expression of our estate as we can, and so mm -hmm. it's Syrah with Petite Syrah. It's very big, very wow. bold, yeah, oaky. It's our most expensive wine, and it's been fun mm -hmm. to watch that wine sell out and have created demand for it. So that's mm -hmm. been not selling out, <laughs> get sold out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I feel like we're we're always we're always moving forward. We're you know we're growing in like we're growing three to five percent a year. Super boring growth, but like as a good buddy of mine tells me, you know that's. That's significant growth over seven to ten years. And sustainable. And you know, they say you plant a vineyard for your great grandkids. Yeah. And there's also the saying that, you know, if you want to make a million dollars in the wine business, you start with two million or something like that. Yeah. Can you speak to the, you know, the Andrew Murray enterprise in terms of have you made money at it yet, other than potentially paying yourself in wine? Yeah, I mean, I'm still here. It's all I do. So yeah, I mean I, I feel like it's, uh, you know, what, what drives anyone who really knows me crazy, like basically within my family unit, who knows me really well, I always tell them, if you would just feed my family, I would do this job for nothing. I mean, I absolutely love it this much. I'm sure you feel about the same. I mean, most of us that are in this business are so passionate. We give so much of ourselves. Clearly, you've been very courageous in your, you know, through your ups and downs. As you said, we've gone through recessions together. You know, it, it's a really rough business it's very capital intensive and you know you're sitting on investment for two to three years before you see a return on your grapes how does it look for andrew murray winery in the future do you see yourself going beyond your hundred and uh, how many acres do you have now well we're, we've leased a hundred about 150 acres 150 so. acres do you see andrew murray going beyond the 150 acres or are you going to continue to just kind of perfect your wines and maybe charge yeah. more money for them there's always that that's a good. That's a that's a good outcome for sure. Like we make wine under NDAs for people, so non-disclosure agreements. So we actually make this rosé for this winery. We make the Sauvignon Blanc for another winery, and that's always really fun. It's sort of a, it's sort of a business thing. You know, we have all these toys, we have all these tanks, we have extra capacity. You know, so I I, I sort of enjoy helping people out. Like Napa had a really big vintage last year. We stored, I can't say whose famous Cabernet we stored, but we stored. 28, 30,000 gallons of Napa Cabernet. Oh. They just needed a home for it for two months, you know, so they shipped it to us. We put it in our tanks and we shipped it back to them after harvest. You, you saved know? a vintage for Napa. Now I guess. You know, no, I don't know about that. Maybe that <laughs> one winery. They had to pay for it, so. But, you know, there, there's things like that that keep it interesting and exciting. At the end of the day, we're, <laughs> we're, we're raising families in the wine business and yeah. we're putting them into great schools. And so that, that is a huge payoff for us, obviously. It's, it's about 
at the end of the day, your family. And you've done a great job raising your family. Um, got great kids, and I've enjoyed watching them grow up. And uh, do you think that they'll end up maybe getting into the wine business someday, or is it to be seen? One of my favorite couple of moments so far, my son just turned 21, not that we haven't been sort of forcing him to drink through the years anyway, or <laughs> yeah. encouraging it, let's call it. My, one of my, like, drop dead favorite like proud papa moments you know he's been chugging like natty light with his fraternity brothers back east in college and he uh he said dad will you send me a couple cases of wine there so you go like, yes <laughs> you know and he had a little wine tasting mostly for like i think it was his girlfriend but i think some of the bros were involved as well but excellent um, we'll convert them somehow. yeah and so you know i i feel I've always told my kids to follow their passion. That's what my dad did to me. My dad didn't presume that I wanted to get in the restaurant business. It wouldn't be a business for me, you know. It, I get it, it's a passion business as well. It takes 150% of yourself. I saw my dad age in the restaurant business. It's funny, he's probably watching me age and overgive of myself in the wine business. I know a lot of people that would say, God, I wouldn't do this for you know, any amount of money. But I just caution my kids, you know, do what gives you absolute joy because you'll crush it at it, whatever it is. Even if it's simple, if it's not providing a huge income, you know, like the wine business, you know, you don't have to go and make a bazillion dollars. I mean, God bless you if you figure that out. But, you know, if you're just happy, you live a good life, you're a good neighbor, you have good friends, like, what else is there really? So, I mean, that, this business is a lifestyle business. And we say that, but not every day is, is you know, there's there's days where we have to turn in our TTV excise tax oh reports, boy. and those are just a pain in the butt, you know. It's, it's just, more, more yeah. labor goes but into you, you the know, report but it's than just the taxes. Like, it's like that's what the wine does. You have a glass of wine, you forget about that, and you remember, right. you know, walking through the vines at sunrise or, you know, you yeah. know, a late vintage night and the smells that are coming out of your tanks or, you know, whatever. There's, there's absolute joyous moments in this business. You just got to go grab them, you know, and then that's what I tell my kids. Like, it may not be for you if you're there. I mean, if, if you find interest and passion, we'll, we'll find a home for you, probably. We're going to make you go work somewhere else, or you bring something really solid back to the table. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't have this gut feeling right now that they're going to want to do this. So it'll be interesting to see what our real next chapter is. But for now, I'm not slowing down. I'm 47, and I feel like I just got started. So hopefully, young man. hopefully I get to do this for, for a bunch more years. We so. get at least 50 more years out of you, right? <laughs> I hope so. That would be nice. This, this might help. It may not either, but it, uh, it might help. So. Well, I'll see you in 2070, my yes. friend. Oh, right. <laughs> and all the years in between, I hope. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Cheers. Thank you so much for being on the show with me. Yeah, Appreciate thanks for it. asking. Appreciate it. Cheers. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara. Co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon, and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Shalafant, and music by Peter Seibert. Special thanks goes out to Andrew Murray, Andrew Murray Vineyard, and 11 Wines. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review.